Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's BespokeCast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. BespokeCast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy BespokeCast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. Welcome to BespokeCast this week. We are lucky enough to have market commentator and columnist for realmoney.com, Helene Meisler, joining us on the program. Uh, She's coming to us from Missouri, and we're thrilled to talk to her. Uh, Helene is a really interesting uh, person to talk to for her views on the market, which revolve primarily around technical analysis, um, sentiment, uh, historical patterns, and she's got a great perspective. We're really lucky to have her. Uh, Helene, welcome. Thanks for talking to us today. Thanks for inviting me. So I think it would be great to sort of talk a little bit about your professional history, uh, where you went to school and and how you got into the markets as a sort of career path. um, So we can sort of learn a little bit about your perspective. So where did you do did you do undergrad? I, I went to undergrad at Pace University in New York and I did not do a graduate degree. I, um, I graduated from school in what was, probably one of the worst job markets in a long time, which was um, in 1982. And um, I'd studied marketing. So I went to work at a marketing research firm, was my first job out of school. So you didn't study markets in college. You didn't You didn't immediately jump into the financial markets as a career path. Uh, had, had you just not been exposed to it yet? Or was it just not something that interested you at the time? I, not only had I not been exposed to it, uh, you know, Wall Street had been in a bear market for, what, 10 years. Uh, you know, people just didn't go work in the markets. It was uh, it was just not not where people went to work. It was um, that's just the way it was, I guess. Right. So I never even thought about I never even considered it. Let me let me say that I, I studied marketing and I took a marketing job and um, the marketing job was much more boring than I thought it was ever going to be. Uh, I was very bored very quickly. So I decided to explore other opportunities. And I met a headhunter who told me that I should go work on Wall Street because uh, the market had just taken off and it was very busy and everybody was looking for people, even if they didn't have experience and they were willing to train and all that sort of stuff. So she set me up on some interviews and, um, I got a job very quickly. So that's how come I went to work on Wall Street. And and the background there is really interesting, sort of talking about how when you initially came out of college in 1982, nobody went to work on Wall Street. Of course, within probably, what, 12 months of that date, interest rates peaked and started to their, their long decline that's ongoing to this day. Uh, unemployment started to really turn around. The sort of Reagan economic expansion was well underway by the middle of the 1980s. Um, Wall Street's run that was basically uninterrupted with the exception of the 1987 um, crash, you know, from the late 1980s through the end of the 1990s, that was all just starting to kick off and sort of starting to suck in attention and jobs and that kind of thing. So, so you know, you, you kind of got in right at the start of that. Exactly, exactly. Um, I started in December of 1982. And uh, I was willing just to learn anything that 
anybody was willing to teach me. And my first job was as an assistant to the partner in charge of the institutional area of Cowan and Company in New York. And um, back then they were a partnership and uh, he just kept getting busier and busier and busier and kept putting more stuff on my desk and telling me how to do stuff. And, and that's how I learned. So uh, institutional equity sales then, is that, is that what that would be? He, he was the partner in charge of the institutional equity area and he was in sales. Got it. So he, he ran both the trading and the sales teams. Yes. And, and research. Oh, wow. Okay. The busier he got, the busier I got. And, uh, we had <laughs> back then you, uh, your, the clients, your, your clients were not hedge funds because you really didn't have very many hedge funds. Then they were big banks and the big banks all had departments with analysts and portfolio managers, but the analysts were where you wanted to focus because they were the ones who voted commission dollars, not the portfolio managers. And um, so if our analyst, our research analyst made a call, you know, where they changed an earnings estimate, you actually had to get on the phone, call every single customer of yours who was an analyst for that stock and give them the new earnings estimate. I mean, this is what counted for research back then. And uh, so that's my, my boss at the time just, you know, was too busy doing a lot of other things. And he would give me those calls to make. And, I, they, I, you know, I look back now, I'm like, those are the most ridiculous calls I ever heard. I would call up and say, we're lowering our IBM estimate due to a higher tax rate. We're still recommending the stock. And here's here's what the new estimate is in dollar terms. And that's it. Bye bye. And that was it. And that was and that was considered like I'd made a research call. But you do that enough, and eventually you learn the stories behind all the stocks. Right. And you learn what moves stocks. And, you know, and that's basically how I learned was because I was constantly having to make these research calls. Well, it's interesting, too, because today, you know, you will see notes get sent out. You know, if 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 uh, if an earnings estimate is materially changed, then you know there are notes sent out about it. Um, it obviously shows up in in a number of different data services. But it's so interesting that you that you say you know by making these repetitive calls where you're just sort of you know dropping the information via phone as opposed to via email, via a website portal, via Bloomberg. You know that forced you to sort of understand the story of each individual stock because you remember you know you're you're doing each of these data points you know dozens of times to all the different clients and you're you're that embeds each data point and then you build this mosaic of data points over time whereas you know i sit here and i can get any earnings estimate for any any of thousands of stocks at a moment's notice and it's really easy to do but finding that story for an individual stock you're not familiar with is is sort of it, it takes a fair bit of effort because you have to focus intently and, you know, block off a bunch of other stuff that's going on and, and, you know, read a lot, you know, you don't have that sort of a recall unless you're maybe an analyst covering that stock or, or, a, you know, something like that. But um, I, I just think it's interesting that, that the sort of muscle memory of the market changes over time because the technology changes. Well, back then, <laughs> long time ago, the fax machine was a very new invention. <laughs> Right. I mean, we didn't have the internet. You didn't have a computer on every desk. We had Quotrons, which were quote machines. And quite frankly, back in the early 80s, I don't even think it was till about the mid 80s, that you actually could get what we called story recall. 
So you would pull up a quote and that would be it. And you would get what would run on your screen would be um, like IBM earnings. And then it would, and then you'd see the story run and that, and it would scroll and that's it. So if you missed it, you couldn't go back and recall it. Like TV. And so we had actually, we actually had a, a ticker, I guess it wasn't really a ticker tape, but it was a tape machine, a Dow Jones tape machine. And it spit out what you saw on your Quotron in, in, on paper. And if you wanted to go to the store, you had to go back and pull out the, the, the paper and go back and read the story. Right. Like a constantly running newspaper throughout the day instead of a. Exactly. Wow, that's, that's fascinating. Exactly. And, and it, you know, I don't think we had what we called back then news recall. I don't know. I guess maybe 1985-ish we started to get news recall, which was like a big deal. It was a big, and you had to pay extra for it. Well, because today, again, today, it's really easy to, to you know, sort of find the raw information. The, the problem is sort of organizing it more than anything else. Whereas, you know, if the whole market is coming to you, all the news around the market is coming to you in newspapers or, you know, maybe in, in one serial sort of paper trail, it's, it's a little bit different. I mean, it, that, 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 I really think that's something that doesn't get talked about enough is how technology has changed how the market feels about stuff. Oh, it's it's very different, and and the reactions are are, are instantaneous now. Uh, well, I mean, they were not to say they weren't instantaneous then, but the dissemination of the information was n not nearly as it is today, due to technology. So you notice then that over time the market has gotten more efficient, just watching as stories hit the headlines and you know that sort of stuff. You not only are stocks reacting faster, but the reacting you know, in, a, in the sense that everyone knows what the reaction is is being caused by. Yes, it's 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 a rare event that that you that you haven't seen the headline. Uh, whereas, like I said, you know, if you go back 35 years, if you'd missed the headline, you actually, you know, had to go physically get up from your desk, walk over to the tape and see. So if you let's say it was something on IBM and you, you typed out IBM on your Quotron, there'd be a little asterisk. And that meant that there was a story. Oh. If there was no asterisk, it meant there was no story. So you actually have to physically get up and walk over to the machine and pull the story and, and, and keep scrolling back on the paper until you found the story. So yes, technology has changed drastically. Uh, you know, I, I remember... Early, in my very early days, I came home and I told my mother, they have this machine. It's called a fax machine. <laughs> I mean, it was, <laughs> I, I think back, I'm like, oh my God. And it took like three minutes a page. Yep. Yep. So, it, you know, you just think about all, all of the differences that, that email has changed, that the internet has changed. It's very different. So you started at Cowan, uh, you were working as an assistant to the head of the institutional equity business. Uh, business was booming because the 1980s bull market was kicking off and, you know, financial assets were beginning a 20 year plus rally. Um, what took, where, where did you head next? Because I know you did spend some time abroad, you spent time at Goldman. Um, so, so what was next in your career after Cowan? Uh, well, I stayed at Cowan, and in the mid-'80s, a, a guy named Justin Mamis came to work for us, and he was a technician. And uh, after 
sitting in on the morning meeting and getting a chance to hear Justin um, make his calls on the market, I was fascinated. So uh, I asked if I could work with him. What, what about it? What about technical analysis fascinated you? You know, honestly, it wasn't so much the charts. It was uh, all the indicators and the sentiment that went along with it. Um, I just thought it was a different way to look at the market than just via earnings estimates. So in other words, what you, what I learned from him was what's priced in and what isn't and how to understand if it's priced in or not. And um, so Cowan was very good to me and they agreed that I could, I could work with Justin. And back then you have to understand, we didn't have very many hedge funds. There were a handful of them and they were large, but the hedge fund business was just starting. And there were a lot of these guys who maybe managed, I don't know, $10 million, which back then was not bad, but there were sort of a lot of them starting out. And a lot of the senior salespeople had no interest in covering an account that was, you know, not going to generate much commission. Right. Because 10 million AUM, you know, even if you turn over a lot is not going to generate that much. No. And especially if they're, they're divvying it up amongst how many different salespeople at different firms. And so, um, and so they said, well, you could cover some of these small five and $10 million hedge funds because nobody else wanted them really. So I said, okay, I can do that. So that's what I did. And I worked with Justin. And, um, and so I learned technical analysis from Justin by, um, so I, I still post my charts by hand every night with a pencil and paper and they're semi-logarithmic charts. And I know that seems ridiculous in this day and age and everybody laughs at me, but there's a, my first day of working with Justin, he handed me this pile of charts, showed me how to calculate the semi-log scale and told me to do the charts. Just so people, I, I guess, not everyone might be familiar with the specific process involved here. So taking a step back, okay. Um, when you go to Bloomberg or StockCharts.com or whatever and pull up a you know an open high low close chart or a candle chart or whatever, mm-hmm. um, Helene is actually going through and drawing those charts by hand, and she'll post them sometimes on Twitter. You know, when a stock drops a lot, she'll have to add a new page below, you know, of this grid paper, but she actually physically draws by hand with a pencil. And Helene, could you maybe discuss, describe what a semi-log scale means for people? Because I think that that would probably help as well. So a semi-log, there, there's basically arithmetic and a logarithmic. So a logarithmic, semi-logarithmic. And arithmetic shows a point change. Uh, so every single box on your chart is the same size. Right, which is how most, I think most people would be familiar with looking at charts. Typically when you see a stock chart, not all the time, but typically they're, they're arithmetic. That it's each, each point on the y-axis is the same as every other point in terms of distance. It all means the same thing. But semi-log. In, in a semi-log, your, your box size is different. Um, and, and that's because you're show, what you're looking to show is a percentage change as well as a point change. As I often say, somebody, somebody gets so excited over a $10 rise in a, a stock like Amazon but that's trading at $800, you know, which often, if you look on a semi-logarithmic chart, is like Intel, which trades at, what, $30, moving 25 cents on the day. I mean, your return on capital is exactly the same. Right. 
there, there's no difference. And that's what you see mm-hmm. on a on a logarithmic scale is you can compare stocks of different prices and, and the kind of the return you'd get on them. So, so for example, on a semi-log scale, if a stock is going up by sort of the same percentage amount every day, like unrealistic, but hypothetically, what you're going to see over time is a straight line, right? Because the percentage change is the same. Whereas with a stock on an arithmetic chart that's going up um, a percent, the same percentage each day, you're going to see like a parabola, like an exponential sort of um, line curving up and to the right. Um, so, you know, even it's just two different ways of showing the same thing. So, um, you were taught how to, it's a $5 stock that moves 50 cents, right? right? Right. It's it's a 10% move. Right. Okay. That's the same as Amazon, which is $800 rallying 80 bucks. Mm -hmm. That's what you're, that's, that's the difference. Whereas, you know, um, and, and so the two charts on an arithmetic stock on an arithmetic chart would look vastly different. Right. That 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 10% move will look vastly different. On on a logarithmic chart, that move will look almost exactly the same. And that's what you're looking to capture. Yeah, there are other ways to get around this too, of course. I mean, so for instance, one thing we do a lot is we index up to 100 and then you show it on an arithmetic scale, but since it's it's the bases are the same, then it works out fine. Um, but you know, it's just a just a different way of of doing essentially the same thing, where you can compare like for like in a in in a uh, on, on a chart. So, anyhow, um, so you spent a bunch of time at Callan. You were working. Uh, you were uh, covering hedge funds. Um, you were learning about the technical analysis trade, and um, that brings us into the mid to late 1980s, correct? Right, the late 80s. Um, I got a call from um, Goldman. Sachs, who up until that point had never had a technical analyst working for them. Oddly enough, shockingly, in this day and age, I realize that. Um, and back then, people went to work at Goldman and they pretty much never left. So I didn't even know anybody who had worked at Goldman, except for Jim Cramer, um, who had was a client at Cow- of Cowan's and who I used to talk to all the time. And um, so I called Jim and I asked him if he thought I should go talk to them <laughs> in confidence. And he said, oh, you have to go. And in Jim's typical enthusiastic way, he, he said to me, but just remember that you wear a skirt. So it's probably going to take 40 interviews before you even see a partner. <laughs> and, you know, that's another way Wall Street has changed, we hope. Um, you definitely wouldn't hear a, a comment like that um, about working at Goldman today. I mean, I, I have female friends who worked at Goldman, and the, the process is not that kind of differential <laughs> in terms of finding a job. So, But you eventually did get hired at Goldman. and I did. It, um, actually, there's a, a, a bit of a funny story. So I, I showed up at, at – oh, so a few days before I went for the interview, I got a call from the administration uh, head, and he said – well, we don't really know what you do. So could you put together a chart of General Motors and do whatever it is that you do? And to show you how long ago this was, he said, we'll send a runner over to pick it up. Oh, wow. Um, I, I mean, we're really talking old Wall Street. I mean, I said, I can fax it over. Nope, they wanted a runner. <laughs> and um, I mean, that's how, that's also another thing that's changed, I'm certain. And um 
so I drew in a line and I said, well, if it goes through 42 and a half, it's measures to 46 and a half, 47. And uh, off I went a few days later for the interview with the Jim Cramer comment in my head. And uh, I get to the, I meet, get to meet the administration guy and he says to me, okay, well, your first interview is with Bob Mnuchin, who um, back then was the head of all trading at Goldman Sachs. Bob Mnuchin, that, that last name sounds familiar. He is the father of- It is Stephen Mnuchin's father, yes. yes. So Jim Cramer gives you the brief to the interview at Goldman, and the first interview is the guy who now is the, is the father of the current U.S. Tre- tre- Secretary of the Treasury. Not bad. Right. And at the time was was the probably I guess maybe the number three partner at Goldman. And and so I guess Kramer's advice in in, in practice didn't actually turn out to be so bad. So I go into uh, Bob's office, and um, before I've even sat down in the chair, he says to me, "So I'm long a hundred thousand shares to General Motors." <laughs> and I'm Uh-oh. sure after that I didn't hear very much <laughs> because my heart was pounding, and. Uh, he said to me, aren't you the one who said if it goes to 42 and a half, it's going to 46 and a half? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and um, anyway, long story short, back then stocks didn't move like they move today. I mean, a dollar move on a stock was a lot. Right. Because, I mean, not only was liquidity lower because you didn't have as much competition in the U.S. equity market, but also it wasn't even decimalized. Right. So a stock would move by an eight at an, by an eighth as opposed to by a penny or even by a fraction of a penny. Right. Exactly. And you didn't have, you know, computerized trading was sort of just coming into being. Well, you certainly wouldn't have like algorithms, right? Oh no, not not at all. Yeah, not at all. And and of course, just in general, um, prices were 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 lower. I mean, I think the Dow was probably, I mean, the S and P wasn't so dominant in the eighties. It became more dominant in the nineties. But I think the Dow was maybe trading around I don't know twenty six hundred, twenty five hundred. I mean, when you think we're ten times higher than that now. So stocks obviously move a lot differently now. So um, anyway, long story short is that GM closed up two and three quarters on the day. And I knew I had the job. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it's just about making the right call at the right time. It's luck. It's pure luck. (laughs) And uh, and I did. And I got I got an offer a week later. So you are then working at Goldman and you are the only technician working at Goldman in the mid 1980s. In the late 80s. And the answer is yes. And, um, you know, and and nobody there even looked at charts. I mean, they didn't even know. They didn't even know what a chart was, really. Which is funny today, because I mean, I, I think people would a lot of people would argue that it's gone too far the other way now and it's all people looking at charts and nobody's actually understanding the businesses. I mean, I hear that complaint sometimes. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's it's funny how things tend to swing back and forth. You know, now a lot of people look at charts and, you know, a lot of people uh, talk about, if not actual technicals and stuff related to technicals, you know, price momentum, that kind of thing. Um, as opposed to doing all the individual line items on a cash flow statement and that kind of thing to come up with a target price. Well, if you're only trading an ETF, what does that matter, right? Sorry, that was a dig at the ETF business. Um, 
if you're if you're trading an ETF as part of an asset allocation thing, then yeah, of course you're not going to look at individual you know earnings of all the different companies involved. You're going to look at aggregates, or you're going to look at you know how how things perform in terms of prices. And you know maybe that works well. It, it's not that it doesn't work well, but it's just funny to hear you say, well, back then nobody looked at charts, whereas today it seems like everybody looks at charts. Right. Well, every everybody today is what I call a chart reader. And don't confuse chart reading with technical analysis, but everybody does. Okay, so so talk a little bit about the difference. Still to this day, what I do is I look at breadth numbers and I look at all sorts of calculations on what the underpinnings of the market are. Most people just don't do that anymore. And they, they, they look at, as you say, price momentum, RSI, all this computerized stuff. Could you then in like one sentence distinguish how to tell the difference between a chart reader and a technical analyst? <laughs> well, is a chart reader really doing analysis or are they just reading the chart? And if you're drawing a couple of lines and reading the chart, that's not really analysis to me. If you're analyzing, you know, think about it. When you analyze cash flow and you analyze revenues and you analyze cost of goods sold, all that's, you're doing an actual analysis, right? Right. You're putting together disparate pieces of information to come up with new information. Right. And, and, and so you're actually analyzing a bunch of different parts to come up with a whole. Whereas if you're just looking at a chart, what are you analyzing? You're drawing in a line. And, and so that to me, to me, that is not analysis. To me, analysis is looking at the sum of the parts to see what the whole could look like. It's interesting because I think, you know, I, I do. I can think of some chart readers who really do take an approach more like what you're describing um, as technical analysis, right? Um, who are maybe looking for patterns or looking at something like RSI, but are also using a series of other indicators that are going, you know, deeper than the headline as opposed to just what's the price action. It's, you know, what's the price action, you know, as determined by this indicator and that indicator and so on and so forth. You know, but. At the same time, I see a ton of people, especially on Twitter. I mean, Twitter's great for this, right? Where you can just fire up Twitter and type in a given ticker and there are going to be 15 different people posting, you know, charts with trend lines and stuff. And not that trend lines are, you know, useless, but, you know, that is often the the depth of the analysis or, you know, it's it's inconsistently applied. You know, you see the same person use one sort of analysis in one context and another sort of analysis is another context and it's all the same thing. Trend lines are made to be broken. Well, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's it. Yeah. And just because you break them doesn't mean everything has changed. It's, you know, a trend line is a rate of change, right? That's all it is. So if I, if I all of a sudden have, have, have a break of a trend line, all I've done is change the rate of change. Yeah. Okay. So, so that, put, to put that in fundamental analysis, my sales have been growing at 25% a year, 25% a year, 25% a year. All of a sudden, they're growing at 20% a year. My rate of change has changed. Does that make the stock all of a sudden, oh my God, I've got to sell it? Well, some people would argue, yeah. <laughs> Just because it's growing at 20 you know what I mean? And this is something we've touched on before with prior guests. Um, there have been a number of guests we've had on previously to talk about technicals. And um, it's just really interesting to hear the different perspectives around, you know, it's not a simple thing. It's not like, you know, technical analysis is trend lines. Well, some people use trend lines in technical analysis and that's all well and good, but it really, it's more complicated than that, right? To me it is, but not to everybody. It, it means different things to different people. And that just makes 
that's what makes markets. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I think on the subject of, of how you view technical analysis, what are some, I mean, we you had mentioned breadth, um, we've mentioned RSI is something that you don't use very often. I don't um, use it all. Okay, you don't use it all, but you do use I don't breadth. use anything computerized. Okay. Because when I when I got into the, the business, we did everything by hand. There really is a certain feeling I get from putting the pencil to the paper every night. It's so interesting. And so for a month, I didn't do it. And I didn't have the same feeling that I have from putting the pencil to the paper. So I had actually had to go back and post all my charts for that month I missed. And I've been doing it ever since. So will you then not look at a, you know, if you're analyzing a stock, you will not look at a stock unless you've kept an eye on it for a while by charting it by hand every night. I generally won't buy a stock that I don't, um, or short a stock that I don't keep a hand chart on. That That's fascinating to me. I mean, I, I guess I do stuff like this too, right? Um, so for instance, every night um, I use uh, our Bloomberg machine to type out upcoming economic data for the you know next 24 hours into a table format that we use for a note we send to clients every night and in in a certain way it's redundant right because all of this information that i'm typing out is available online somewhere and it would be easy to just link to a calendar somewhere or easy to i don't know come up with a with a faster way of doing it but i always manually type it out and i'm sort of thinking about that that's the memory muscle you talked about earlier Right. You know, I always know what's happening in, you know, Australian economic data tomorrow because I'm, you know, I just do it every night and it's part, you know, and it doesn't necessarily add a huge amount of value on any given day. But having that habit of always looking at what's coming out, always knowing what's come out the night before, you know, it makes you more conversant in a number of things. Obviously, this doesn't necessarily apply to technical analysis, but, it, you know, that sort of um old-fashioned or slower way of doing things can sometimes yield insights that you wouldn't get just by looking at the headlines, right? You you tend to retain it better. And, and I think if you retain it better, whether you're using it on a daily basis or not, some point, somewhere, something is going to come up and you're going to say, wait a minute, I know this and there's a connection here because I've been writing it down like that every single night and I've seen this before. Right. So, so is that something you do a lot of too? Then looking at analogs to past, what's happened in the past? Well, I'm I'm not big on all those. Oh, doesn't this chart look just like 1929? I think those are a joke. Sure. But I am big on if the underlying indicators look similar to another period of time. So, can you give an example of what you mean there? Okay. So, for example. Um, you know, if you follow me on Twitter, you know that I carry on constantly about the utilities. And I am about the only person who does. Um, in my career, I have noticed that the utilities tend to be leaders and not laggards. And is there a timing to them? No. As I watch the utilities, I look for patterns. Are they bottoming? Are they topping? What direction are they going in? Because I, I know that in a lot of previous cycles, the utilities have been the leaders. And it's interesting, too, talking about utilities as leaders, because the utilities are viewed as bond proxies, as defensive stocks, as, you know, um, not you wouldn't think of them as, as market leaders, I, at least the, the sort of standard market dogma, um, not that it's right or wrong, but I don't think I've ever heard of anyone else 
using utilities as a leading indicator of the market, but it does make sense from a certain perspective, right? Because um, if they're bond proxies and interest rates are falling, you should want to pay more for all financial assets. So it would make sense that the sort of most sensitive um, parts of the market to that phenomenon would lead the rest of the market. That's exactly right, because remember, lower interest rates are bullish for stocks, right? At least in my career, remember, in my career, lowest, lower interest rates have been bullish for stocks. Yeah, the thing we say about it is that is that if you hold all else equal, unquestionably, lower interest rates bullish for stocks. It depends on why interest rates are dropping, and it depends on how fast they're dropping and that kind of thing. But yes, all else equal, certainly, if you just only variable you change is, is interest rates, you should want to pay more for stocks. I mean, it's it's just basic bond math, right? Interest rates down, prices up, and discounted cash flows. So um, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. So so for I'll give you an, exa- an, an example. Uh, forgive me, but I think it was the summer of 2014. It may have been the summer of 2015, though. Um, the utilities and the transportation stocks just refused to go up. They absolutely refused to confirm anything else that was going on in the market. And I went back and I looked, and there was an absolute similarity to other to to a couple of other points in time where you had very similar patterns that had come up. And so to me, that was more interesting in in finding a similarity or an analog, as you call it, to um another point in time without my having to say, "Oh, doesn't the chart look just like nineteen twenty nine you you have a, another time where quote unquote stocks are acting in a similar fashion. I don't have to look at the pattern to say that. In other words, I don't have to overlay the S and P this year to another year. But you can say that the the feel is the same, and that but that can be squishy, right? I mean, I, I guess if I was just starting out today and never having looked at stocks before, and I wanted to take that approach. That would be really hard, right? Because I wasn't there. I don't remember what happened with it. I don't, you know, not only do I not have a memory of it, I wouldn't even know where to go to sort of get a feel for the stock market from 1987 or whenever, you know, whatever the period you want to compare it to. Yeah, but isn't that why experience matters? Oh, absolutely. No, for sure. I'm not not saying that just because of someone who's brand new to the market shouldn't um, or would have a hard time doing it means it's not a good strategy. Um, I just I just find it interesting, you know. Whereas other approaches to the market, um, I, I'm trying to think, you know, if you're just trying to assess uh, what a company's balance sheet looks like, you, you know, there's less, you, you know, there, there's obviously still a lar- large degree of experience that matters, but there's less, and there, it's a little bit squishier or a little less squishy, I guess you could say. Well, it's it's why it's subjective. That's really what it is. It's why why it's not there. There's no formula for it. Right. And it's it's just it's very subjective. What do I see? It's art, not science, I guess, is how they call it. Uh, but what do I see versus what somebody else might see? Yeah. And that's what makes a market, as you said before. And it's you know, it's that's all that's all I can do is is go back and look and or you know and so then I will take that and I remember writing about this and I will take that and I will I found a previous time and it was in the 70s and I went back and I looked at what a lot of the other indicators what did the advanced decline line look like back then and <clears throat> what did the number of stocks making new highs look like back then and then I can do a full analysis and then I can say, oh, there's a lot of similarities, whether or not you can see it on the chart of the S&P or not. 
I can tell you that the underlying backdrop has a lot of similarities. Advanced decline, uh, which is just for folks that aren't familiar with it, if you take there for 500 stocks in the S&P 500 and uh, 250 go up and 250 go down, you record the ups as one, you record the downs as negative one, and it's a zero reading on the day. If you have 200 that go up and 300 that go down, it's you add 200, you subtract 300, and your advanced decline reading for the day is negative 100. So you can keep track of this a number of different ways. Uh, we discuss it in, in one of our bespoke briefs that we've done. Um, you can look at cumulative, you can look at rolling. There's a million different ways to look at it. Um, so, But that is an indicator you use, Helene? I use it a lot. Um, there, are, It has a lot of faults, I agree. Um, but I can't help it. I, To me... Um, we call it the breadth of the market, and if breadth is good, then you you can't fight it. If breadth is is poor, then you shouldn't fight that either. Mm-hmm. You know, one day does not make a market, but over time, you really should see the majority of stocks lifting with the indexes. Right, and that's I haven't looked at uh, cumulative advanced decline in uh, a little while here, but you know. Um, in the period last summer, for instance, uh, when the market was sort of starting to make new highs but not doing so dramatically, breadth was really strong. Like breadth was ripping the new highs, and it was like, okay, well, you know, eventually we're going to get there on the on the broader market. Is kind of how I was thinking about it. Um, so, just sort of an example of what advanced decline looks like. Do you also look at volume? I do, and I actually one of my favorite indicators is using a up-down volume in a cumulative manner. Um, And so I like to see if, uh, let's say like last Friday, the net breadth, the advancers minus the decliners was positive by, I don't know, about 100 issues or something like that. But net volume was negative by almost a billion shares. So so net volume then is the number of Advancing advancing shares versus declining. So so it's up it's um, up volume minus down volume. So it's it's shares traded in in issues that are up on the day versus shares traded in issues that are down on the day. Correct. And so what you're looking to see is where all the action is. Right. If everyone's buying and, or and yeah. and last Friday all the action was really on the downside, and 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 prior to that, the la- the prior over the prior seven trading days. There had only been one day where net volume was positive. Oh, I, I gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Which, which tells you how much selling has been going on underneath. Right. Even though stock prices haven't moved that much recently. Actually, I mean, we're as we're recording this, it is uh, February 28th. Let me see if the Dow is up or down on the day, because if it's up, uh, the Dow is down five bips on the day. So it would end its streak um, of closes consecutively higher at 12 if if it's if it closes here on the day and the nasdaq just made new lows so maybe we'll maybe we'll see that streak broken um but yeah to you know even though the market's been been going up there's been a lot of selling under the surface is what you're saying right over over the course of the last week and a half i mean not over the course of the last two months but over the course of the last week and a half yes there's been plenty of selling taking place. Despite the leading indicator Utes getting close to making a new high. They've they've ripped in the last couple of days. Right, but remember the Utes are not there's no timing to them. Ah. Okay. So that's an important thing. Okay, remember I just gave you the lag from 1987 was what almost 7 or 8 months. So um that's why again, 
you know, everybody says, oh, but in, in 1987, rates were rising. Well, rates were rising because the utilities and the utilities had peaked. Mm -hmm. You know, they go hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's, that, there's a lot uh, that that's like a perfect example of there's there's so much going on in how you look at the market. And I think I think you and I have in the past disagreed about stuff where, you know, you've said, oh, well, you know, I, I think the transports was a good example. Like the transports aren't making new highs to so the markets at risk, basically. Right. I'm, I'm not I don't want to put words in your mouth, but there's something to that effect. And I said, well, no, 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 no. Like if you go back and look at the, you know, historical returns and like how it how it looks at, you know, if the transports are down X amount then it doesn't actually mean anything for the industrials. Um, you know, and, and it depends, right? Context just matters a lot. Exactly. Exactly. So, so that's why I tend not to do that. And I say to you that I will take a look, like when you talk about the transportation index, I, I can't tell you how often I hear if I say, but the transports haven't made a new high. And I can't tell you how often I hear, oh, but, you know, Charles Dow's theory, which, by the way, is not even technical, it's economic. Charles Dow's theory is that the, the companies that are making the goods and the companies that are transporting the goods should both be doing the same. And, and if they're not, there is a problem. So his point is it's an economic problem. And I look at it and I say that I can't tell you how many times starting back in 1999 when the transports didn't confirm, I heard, oh, but the internet, and because of the internet, we don't transport goods and, you know, and it was all, we don't, we don't have to fly to meetings all the time. And there were so many excuses. I heard the same thing in, in 2007 as well. I, there's always going to be a reason why. But if you go back and you look, the transportation average should be going up at the same time that the industrials and the S&P are. Just, they should. You can't leave out a whole section of the market and just say, oh, well. Yeah, no, I, I think it is It is just different approaches, right? So, I, you know, we uh, are, are famous really for looking at specific time shots and summarizing in tables, right? Like that is like something we do all the time. And, you know, we, we really like doing things that way. Um, you know, and it, it's funny, you know, you like, doing things because you like to be able to see what you know, the context around what happened. You know, our sort of view of it is, well, if it's always this, if you treat each individual instance the same way, then you can't hide anything by, you know, leaving something out or, or, you know, leaving, you know, providing false context, right? If it's the same way every time, then it's the same way. Not that either approach is right or wrong or anything like that. It's just, it's interesting to hear that sort of contrast between the two, right? One is, you know, well, you don't want to provide false context. And the other is, well, you need the context. If you're, if you're treating everything exactly the same way each time, then you're probably throwing out some context. Um, two it's, sort it's of approaches, two different to, the same, approaches. Yeah, to the same problem. And, and, and admittedly, admittedly, mine is always going to be much more subjective. Yeah. Yeah. Mine is always going to be, well, you know, it's, it's my bias is going to always come through in it. Whereas with you, you, you take all the bias out. Right. Right. So again, that's just, you know, that's analysis as opposed to just statistics, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's just two different ways of conducting analysis. I mean, I, I think, I think it, one is, is softer and I say soft in, 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 in a totally unpejorative sense. I just mean, you know, it's, um, it's, it's subjective, right? It's subjective, very and, subjective. Yeah. and the other is totally objective and 
objective isn't always necessarily the best way to go. <laughs> Look, there are times that each has its time. So it's, you know, there's obviously if there was one way to do everything right, we wouldn't have different markets, would we? You'd never be able to make a market. One thing I've heard you say a number of times today is, is the word indicator. You've said in the past to me that you hate the concept of a signal. So can you talk a, just a little bit about what the difference between an indicator and a signal is? Because I think I, I've heard your explanation, but I, I would love to hear for you to lay out for people because I think those two things and those two concepts, even if they're not called exactly indicator and signal, can often get confused and that it leads people down kind of the wrong road. So can you sort of explain the difference between an indicator and a signal and tell us why you love indicators and you hate signals? To me, you, when you say signal, it means if I don't do something right here and now, that's it. Here's the signal. The bell is ringing. I just don't think they ring bells in markets. And I think things line up and you can get to the sum of the, the parts and you can make, uh, hopefully, an educated conclusion based for me based upon the indicators. And are all my indicators going to line up and say the exact same thing at the exact same time, oh my God, I don't think that's ever happened. Maybe once or twice in my life, uh, you know. But so, so to me, it's very hard for me to call something a signal because to me, a signal implies that this is it. It's the be all and end all. And I just don't think the market works like that. Right, it's a, it's a very um, human way of viewing the market, I suppose you could say. Again, it's subjective, it, you know, and, and so I, I'm not a big fan of, I, you know, some people say, oh, but you know, you, you, you're not definitive. Well, because I don't think the market is that definitive. I just don't think so. I think the market has a lot of great, you know, you know we watch, we watch so, so much on, on television and it's, what would you buy now? What would you sell now? Oh my God, if the market were like that, we'd all be crazy. Yeah. And and that's that was something that really surprised me too when I first you know took step foot on a institutional trading floor was how the entire culture of the place I was in was was geared towards binary. You have to have an opinion buy or sell and everything and it's just a binary buy or sell opinion. You can't say I don't know, you can't say I love it and I, I like it a little bit, I like it not that much, I hate it. You have to say buy or sell. Everything's binary. Everything can be boiled down to those two outcomes and and that sort of that sort of view was very foreign to me very alien to me and to this day is so it, it is really funny to hear you know you it's most commonly on tv but you hear that in a lot of trading floors is that same kind of binary attitude right and and again you know someone will say to me oh what what would you use as a stop on on blah 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 and uh, you know to me also a stop is subjective so that's interesting. So that's sort of getting more into risk management, which I think is a, a fascinating subject that we don't talk about enough as an industry. So we'd be really interested to hear your, your thoughts on that. Why is a stop subjective? What do you mean by that? Again, I want to look at the picture. Would a, would, a, would a spike down to 79 ruin the whole picture? Probably not, especially if it goes to 79 and comes right back. Do I know that? No. But again, that's very subjective. And so you know, if you're going to use stops, I always think, well, you should use a stop that's lower than what's obvious, because otherwise you'll get shaken out. Of, you'll get shaken out a gazillion times. You may see me talk about 
on on Twitter, you may see me talk about levels. And and I'm always making fun of people who talk about levels. What's the level? And I think, oh my God, why? Just because the S&P course is 2340, that like all of a sudden makes it a buy? Or just because it trades under it, it makes it a sell? I, I That to me, that concept is like ridiculous. I, I don't get that. Because to me is, what if you cross back under 2340 and selling dries up? Well, doesn't, isn't that bullish? Not bearish? Right. So how then do you, do you mix that understandably um, sort of nuanced picture of cells or, or sorry, of stops with the idea that it, it can be very hard to remain objective and manage risk and, you know, not get married to a position that's running against you. <laughs> Cause that to me, I mean, I, I get, you know, everything you said just makes perfect sense. But if I'm, you know, if I'm thinking about risk management, that's like a nightmare, right? Because every single time you're sort of being given this opportunity to yourself to sort of say, oh, well, you know, there's this reason or that reason that this is fine and I can just ride this down further. And before you know it, right? Like, like so so how do you balance those two outcomes? It, it's not, I, I will say it's not easy. And at some point you have to say to yourself, okay, I, I'm just wrong. Um, but but everyone has a different risk tolerance, don't they? That's true. And And so what my risk tolerance could be may be vastly different than what your risk tolerance is. So again, I don't know where you should put your stop. I know where I would put my stop. And I know at what point, so again, if I'm looking at a chart, I know at what point, uh, no, now it doesn't look right anymore. So I have to give myself a little more risk tolerance on some of that. I have to give, I have to say to myself, maybe I'm just a buck or two early. I know that's not it's not an easy answer because I'm very gray. I don't think it's one of those things that there's like a right wrong. It should be, you know, formulaic or anything like that. It's just really interesting to hear your approach to it because I think it does differ significantly from, you know, how other people we've talked about risk management tend tend to view things, right? Um I'll I'll give you an example. Um the week before the election, just before the election, I I I all the majority of my indicators indicated that it wasn't going to matter who won the election. It looked like we were at right trading right near a low, just based on a variety of indicators I had. I couldn't say, oh my God, this is it. We have to buy right here. What I did was I said, I know there's a low in here. And so you got to start thinking about buying. To me, that's where you have to start thinking about buying. Yeah, because nobody ever tags the low. Well, I mean, if if I think I've tagged a low and a high, maybe, you know, in 35 years of doing this, twice, three times, <laughs> and I can guarantee you every single time was pure luck. Right. <laughs> so, so again, you know, did I, did I know when I saw the S&Bs down a hundred points overnight trading and, you know, let me tell you, my stomach was not feeling too good. The next morning, my stomach wasn't feeling too good either. Well, you and Icon. <laughs> But, but I'm just saying that that's just, you know, I didn't know what level we'd bottom out at. I can't tell you. I can only tell you what the indicators are showing. So to me, someone who gives you the level and calls buy signals, I don't know. I think that's a wonderful thing if you can get it right. <laughs> I can't. Well, that that's a very humble admission, I think, to to sort of wrap up 
here, uh, Helena. There's one other segment we like to do uh, called Trading Rich or Trading Cheap, where I'm just going to throw out a couple topics and you can sort of say if they're trading rich or trading cheap and why. And um, it's not necessarily financial market stuff, so it's not like buy or sell a stock, but sort of holistically whether you think something is overvalued or undervalued. So um, starting off with where you live, the Midwest, is it trading rich or is it trading cheap? Uh, trading cheap. Why is that? Oh, because I was just in New York, which is my hometown, uh, for 10 days in January. And um, God, it amazes me how much money you can blow through in New York relative to living in the Midwest. Isn't it insane? It's it's insane. It's insane. It, it, to me, it really is insane. You know, even if you just, just take the concept of taking the subway, which is really pretty cheap way to get around. It's still, I think, what, $2.50 a ride. That means it's $5 to get there and $5 to get home. In yep. the Midwest, I can go to the grocery store in my car, park for free, and go home. And what have I used? Not even a half a gallon of gas, a quarter of a gallon of gas. I mean, I'll just do that math. No, it's something else. Um, okay, so trading rich or trading cheap, uh, working from home. I work from home, you work from home. I think we both like it pretty pretty well. Um, is it is it fairly valued? Is it undervalued, overvalued? Well, I've been working from home since 1996, and I have never looked back. I think there are a lot of people who couldn't work from home. It takes a certain personality. What And what personality do you think that is? Well, two things. One is you have to be the kind of pre person who you don't need to be around people all day long and need people interaction. Um, but the other thing is that one of the reasons I think we can be successful working from home is because our day is so terribly structured by the market hours. And I think if you don't work in the market, your day is not nearly not going to be nearly as structured. Yeah, I mean, when I, I wake up and, you know, I need to get cut up because I need to start writing by this time to get my note up by that time, which is going to be this time before the economic data, which comes out before the market's open, you know, and, and if I, you know, get caught out on the early part of that, then the whole thing sort of falls apart. So you really do have to be very disciplined with your time. I, I agree with you. I think that's a big factor that makes working from home when you're in a markets type position um a little bit easier to do. Um, the next thing, trading rich or trading cheap, baking. I have eaten your baking. It's fantastic. Um, <laughs> do you think that uh, more people are going to start doing stuff at home instead of buying stuff from the store? Because I I think over the years it's trended away from kind of the, the home baker. Do you think that's going to change or do you think that people are going to move further away from doing stuff on their own? I tell you, I see more and more people of your generation and maybe even some of mine, um, moving toward that blue apron, uh, oh, yeah. which, which I was surprised at. I'm, I'm very surprised at. I can't believe how many people are, are trending in that direction, uh, even if it's just two or three days a week. And, and not necessarily blue apron, but a service akin to that. So I don't think that exists for baking specifically. I, I, I cook a lot. So, you know, I, I cook from scratch. I don't use Blue Apron. Um, I It doesn't really have much for me, but I think people do like it. Although, you know, I don't think I've ever seen someone do that sort of service as like, you know, 
you know, bake your own cookies every month or something like that. And maybe that's a, maybe that's an idea. Maybe that could be a, a company you could start. <laughs> I, you I'm know. not a baker, so I can't be involved. <laughs> uh, the last thing, uh, trading rich or trading cheap, Twitter. <sighs> well, my view on Twitter is that for those of us in the financial markets, it's an, and, and in journalism, it's a very natural extension. We have spent our careers sitting in front of a screen watching news scroll. Okay, I mean, go back to my first story of, of when I sat in front of a Quotron and watched the news scroll. I mean, this is what we've done our whole careers. It's what journalists do. Um, and well, you know, journalists are out getting the stories, but um, it's, it's a very natural extension to sit there and have a conversation all day long about what you're seeing and, and and the news and, and commenting on it. A, a trading floor also. It's not just the news, right? It's like, you know, sort of batting ideas it's a virtual around trading a sort floor. of a flat environment. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, whereas I don't think others in other industries would find it as as natural for um, for their lives. So you're saying that we need to spin off finance Twitter. We need to LBO it somehow. Somehow or another, I, I do think that, that there is a business that is much more focused towards finance, finance and news. My, my sense is that I can see my own Twitter feed is heavily skewed toward um, finance. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Helene. Um, you can uh, follow Helene on Twitter. That's at H Meisler. Uh, she writes for realmoney.com. And it was really fantastic to get to talk to you today, um, Helene. And thank you so much for joining us. Um, this was a really interesting conversation, and it was great to have you. Thanks, George. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Subscribers to our research receive access to the Bespoke Cast one week before public release, in addition to the wide range of reports, data sets, analysis, and commentary that we send out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2016, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources which Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.